Welcome to the Grow My Revenue Business Cast with Ian Altman, unconventional strategies for selling, innovation, and leadership. Ian interviews some of the brightest minds who share proven methods to help you achieve success and grow revenue with integrity. Every episode concludes with a quick recap of actionable steps you can take to deliver tangible, immediate results for your business. Now, here's your host, Ian Altman. Hey, it's Ian Altman. On this episode, I'm joined by New York Times bestselling author Michael Port. His latest book, Steal the Show, is sure to be an extraordinary success. Now, I've had the good fortune of working personally with Michael in his coaching business. He's one of the best people on the planet when it comes to delivering incredible performances. In fact, I believe this is why he was put on this earth. He started his career as a professional actor on shows like Sex in the City and Third Watch. You'll discover a ton from this episode. I'll ask Michael how Steal the Show applies to every conversation, not just speakers. I'll ask him the biggest surprise he's seen coaching a broad range of people from novices to some of those recognized names on the stage. And we'll talk about what you can do to avoid nerves in front of an audience ranging from 1 to 10,001. So here's my interview with Michael Port. So Michael Port, welcome to the program. Thank you. Someone might be thinking out there, hey, you know what, Ian, you told us about Michael Port, how he's amazing at helping people become these heroic public speakers, but I'm not a professional speaker. So explain why these concepts in Steal the Show apply to every conversation. Happy to. Our life, I think, is made up of lots of different high stakes situations. And how we perform in those high-stakes situations determines the quality of our life. And public speaking is not something one does just on a stage. I think unless you're having a conversation with yourself in your head, if the words are coming out of your mouth and there is sound associated with those words, you're speaking in public. All speaking is public speaking. And the way that you perform in a job interview or a negotiation or a sales meeting or even a first date is a type of performance. Now, hopefully they're authentic performances because the greatest performers in the world are the most authentic performers. If you are inauthentic, you will come across as inauthentic. If you are authentic, you will come across as authentic. So if you're an authentic person, you never need to worry about being inauthentic. It's very important that we get that on the table right away because sometimes people associate performance with pretend, with fake. And that's not what I'm teaching and it's absolutely not necessary. And, and in fact, Michael, you've, you've talked about this um, when, when I've been in programs that, that you've conducted and you talk about this idea of how professional actors actually take on a role mm -hmm. where they're not acting, mm -hmm. but more being. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So actors that we don't typically resonate with, meaning the ones that don't affect us, are often playing at a role. So what do you mean by that? It doesn't feel real to you because they don't seem to be inhabiting the emotional life of that character. Now, the actors that really resonate with you, that you connect with, that move you to feel differently, 
are generally the ones who are the most honest in their performances. So take Tom Hanks, for example. Most people resonate with Tom Hanks. I think most people with a pulse resonate with Tom Hanks. People without a pulse, maybe not, but otherwise, pretty much universally. <laughs> he's a pretty he's a pretty universally appreciated actor. <laughs> and when he's doing a, a, a movie, let's say he's doing a World War II movie, he knows he's in a costume, he knows he's on set, he knows he's memorized the lines, and he knows there's a camera in his face. But what you see him feeling is real for him. He's not pretending to cry, pretending to be angry, pretending to be lonely. He is actually feeling those things for real, and that's why you connect with him. So the same is true for the different performances in our life. We want to bring as much honesty to them as we possibly can. And one of the reasons, one of the things that holds us up significantly is the fear of rejection, the fear that will be criticized, the fear that people will just not like what we have to say, and as a result, will make us feel bad. That's the biggest fear that most people have around performing. Sure. I mean, what are the nerves about? You know, if it's true, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not certain that it is true, but if it's true that public speaking is the number one fear and death is the number two fear, if that's true, why? Why is it so scary? Well, we're afraid of messing up. We're afraid of being rejected. And what does that mean? It means that we're going for approval. And if we are focusing on getting approval, then we are not necessarily focusing on getting results. And one of the things that I go into specifically in Steal the Show is focusing on results rather than approval. Now, generally, if you get results, you get a fair amount of approval. Sure. But sometimes you won't. You know, let's say you get a lot of results and you make $10 million this year. Well, there may be some people in your family who resent you for making money. So you don't get approval from them. You have to get over it. You have to get over <laughs> it. I think you will with your $10 million. But if you go for approval because and, and you don't uh, go after those big contracts or don't build the business of your dreams because you're afraid that the people around you won't approve of it, well, then you're just playing small. And any performer that is playing small, that's not taking risks, any performer that's going after approval rather than results is generally gonna fall flat in the high stakes you know, moments of their life. And so what we're doing is we're trying to focus on that individual and making sure that you can shine in the spotlight moments of your life. Thinking about even an example like a job interview, if the person's thinking, how do I get this person to, to give me approval for what I'm saying, then you're missing the point. If you think, how do I help this person achieve results, mm -hmm. then the pressure's off because now you're not seeking their approval. You're trying to help them get results. They're mm -hmm. going to see and feel that. Mm -hmm. And it just changes that dynamic dramatically. Yeah. One of my uh, students... Uh, called me one day because she got a TV interview, broadcast interview with one of the big network morning shows. She had a new book out and she was very anxious. And she said, Michael, what do I do? I'm, well, how do I, how do I make sure that I'm good? I said, well, you really can't be good. And I just heard this silence <laughs> on the other end of the line. And then you hung up. Yeah, then I hung up. <laughs> no, and she said, what do you mean? I said, it's not that you're not good, but you can't go into one of these interview situations trying to be good. You can go in trying to be helpful. 
And if you're very well prepared, then you can be helpful. It's as simple as that. And of course, if you're helpful, you'll be perceived as a good guest for both the show and the audience. But most of us focus on trying to be good or trying to be right. And if you're going into the job interview, as you, uh, as you indicated, is a performance, and you're trying to think about what they want you to say, it often comes across as inauthentic. Sure. Now, that doesn't mean that we should say anything that comes to our mind in any, you know, interview or <laughs> negotiation. No, we filter all day long. Sure. And filtering is a good thing. <laughs> it's a very good thing for the most part. But watering ourselves down, pretending we're something other than we are, that's not the kind of filtering that helps us do big things in the world. Sure. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's funny. When, when I speak to people from the sales side, what I tell them is, look, you need to focus on delivering results for your client. And people will often ask me, well, so what if I meet with them and I don't think I can deliver results? I mean, then how do I sell them? And I say, well, why would you want to sell something to somebody if you can't deliver results? Like, help me understand that because it's going to be a train wreck. It's going to be a disaster. And I believe that's the same thing with you're speaking on a stage to one person Mm -hmm. or Mm 20,000. If you know you shouldn't be delivering that message, you probably shouldn't be there. That's right. This is exactly right. I'm with you 100%. Now, Michael, I've, I've seen you work with people who were afraid to speak in front of one person, let alone a larger audience. Mm-hmm. And you've also worked with experienced speaking professionals mm-hmm. to raise the level of our game. So comparing those two groups, what are the biggest surprises that you found in working you know, across different levels of people? Mm. So the A-listers, the professional speakers, the people who are making 10, 15, 20, 30 plus thousand dollars for a speech, they create content, they have a message, and then they speak on it. And then there are people who every once in a while will need to give a presentation. And what's interesting is that the level of talent between those two groups from what I've found is not that different. The big difference is that the first group feels that they deserve to be on the stage. They feel they have something to say. They feel that they can be of help to other people. They feel that the time that they're given is time well spent for the people in the room. Whereas the the person who doesn't feel that way, even if they have more talent than some of these professionals, don't exhibit, they don't demonstrate this talent because they question themselves so strongly. So there are two kinds of critics in the world. There are internal critics and there are external critics. And I go into this in part one of Steal the Show because I focus on mindset first, you know, the way that a performer thinks. And And we are often driven by both the internal critics, the voices that say, you're not enough. You don't know enough. Who do you, who are you to say anything that, you know, all this has already been said before. And then there are the external critics who, you know, sometimes there are just people who like to push others down to lift themselves up. And sometimes there are people who are just fault finders. That's what they do. That's their thing. 
And you know that's okay. I yeah, uh, I you know I I don't have any problem with uh, any of these folks because I just don't pay attention to them. Yeah. Well, the fault finders we might have a problem with. We just ignore them. <laughs> yeah. You know, and the reason and and that's not so easy. I mean, I'm a I'm definitely a sensitive person to those kind of things. I I have an I have a natural need for approval. I mean, most people who go into acting in the first place uh, don't do it because they don't want approval. Let's just get that on the table right away. <laughs> but over the years, I've been able to focus much more on results than approval. And, and if I focus on results rather than approval, what I realized I had to do is I had to quiet down the voices of judgment in my head. Because when those voices of judgment are loud, then you hear the external critics even more. But when you don't have very loud voices of judgment in your head, then you don't hear the external critics quite as much. And if you don't hear the external critics that much and you don't hear the internal critics that much, you're mu much more willing to put yourself on the line. You're much more willing to step into high stake situations. You're much more willing to say, yeah, give me the ball. I want the ball. Yeah. And, and I, I think one of the biggest differences, if I'm, if I'm kind of peeling back what you're saying about the people who were the A-listers where we're fortunate to command a, a, a solid fee for what we do mm -hmm. and the people who are starting, I believe a lot of it comes down to their own confidence internally mm -hmm. and what they feel it's worth. I always say you can never sell anything for a penny more than you think it's worth because mm -hmm. your body language and tone are going to give away that you're not confident that it's worth that much. That's right. That's exactly right. And so when people ask me, how much should I charge? I said, well, how much do you think it's worth? Mm -hmm. And they tell me, and I go, that's how much you should charge mm -hmm. until you think it's worth more, in which case then you can charge more. And if you see it in the big picture, in the big context, you might realize why it's worth more. Now, there, there are a ton of programs that talk about how to prepare your slides and how you should stand and where you put your hands and, and, the, and all these quirky things that, that we often laugh at. And I know that you approach things very differently. And in Steal the Show, you lay out these three parts, the idea of mindset, these principles, and then the master class. So walk mm -hmm. me through how that approach delivers results, because I've seen it firsthand. I know it does. Mm -hmm. I just want our listeners to understand what's different. Mm -hmm. Sure. The truth of the matter is you can learn public speaking techniques from a book. You can, you can be introduced to the mindset, but there's nothing in the world like actually working on a stage with a director on your speaking. And this, of course, you know firsthand. So I can talk about the transformations that people experience when they do this work, but if you've never had the transformation, sometimes it's hard to imagine it is so dramatic. Okay, and, 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 and let me tell you, Michael, I mean, I literally in going to your live programs, I've seen people who were petrified to step on stage go from zero to 10, generously a three to an eight in 20 minutes. Yeah. And with everyone in the, everyone else in the room having this, you know, dumbfounded look with their <laughs> jaw dropped of, oh my God, how did that happen? I remember Jordan Harbinger, who uh, is, you know, run, who is the host of The Art of Charm, one of the, well, he gets like $2 million downloads a month or something, very popular podcast. Uh, he saw me do that at an event and he said, I was absolutely positive that it was staged. He said, I thought that you worked it out with that person beforehand, and then you just did it on stage the way you had rehearsed it with them prior. He said, there's no way that that could have happened. 
<laughs> and then he watched another and another and another and another. And eventually he said, oh my God, this is not staged. This is real. Well, and Michael, the, the most remarkable thing to me is, and, and what I love, and it's something that people won't necessarily um, have an appreciation for without physically being at the events that, that you run, is how there can be four people in a row who you work with and they don't all get the same guidance. They don't, in fact, in most cases, none of them get any of the same information. Yeah. I mean, it's very different, but the, but the yeah. building blocks and principles yeah. are the same and you lay them out and steal the show. That's a yeah. foundation that's that right. we can build on. Yeah. So that's exactly right. There are definitely things that, uh, that all of us as presenters of any kind, um, need to understand, need to learn a technique that we need to master. And the technique that I teach in Steal the Show uh, may be surprising to folks uh, because it's newer uh, as it relates to public speaking training, but it comes from the world of acting. So if an experienced actor sees what I'm doing with the public speaking students, they get it. They've been through it a hundred times themselves because actors are used to taking direction and uh, developing uh, their characters on the spot, in the moment, um, improv improvising inside structures, et cetera. But most people have never had that experience. And when folks, when folks ask me about my particular style, like what's your style, what's your method? I say, I have a very specific methodology in terms of the way that I teach, but I have no style. Yeah. And me as a speaker, I have my own individual style when I'm speaking. And that may resonate with some and may not resonate with others, but each one of us has our own style. And my job is to see the individual and to help that individual amplify their own style, the best parts of their performance style, so that they're completely unique as themselves. So my, if you like, okay, so take, if you take the, the people that I've trained and you put them uh, on stages around the country and you look at them and say, well, those speakers are much more compelling than most speakers you'll see, period. But then you'll, then you'll ask them, well, are they the same? I'll say, no, they're all dramatically different. Do they have a particular style? No, they don't have any particular style. So my goal is for nobody to know that I worked with them. Not because I, I think that, you know, I, I mean, I want them to shout from the rooftops, you go work with Michael Port, of course, but I don't, I don't want anyone to see any kind of style that comes from me or my teaching uh, in their work. And, and that's the key is that you're building your characters, your, your public speaking uh, uh, profile from the inside out. So when you're talking about body language tricks, or you're talking about where to put your hands, or you're giving a particular pattern, like walk on a W on a stage, all of these things are external devices that are placed on top of uh, someone's uh, personality and completely ignore uh, the internal component of performance because you are developing a character and, and you have a real life on stage. You are not a talking head. You are not a puppet. You are not a robot. So none of my students ever ask, what do I do with my hands? It's never a question. Yeah. The hands do exactly what the hands are supposed to do because they're so connected to what they are trying to do in that room. So you have an objective as a speaker. Well, and, and I think it's back to that level of authenticity. If you're authentic, you don't really think about it. When you're thinking, 
oh, I need to I need to do this gesture. It's going to seem forced when your when your speech just makes that happen. Your your hands go that way and it doesn't seem out of place. That's right. And and here's the thing. One of the reasons there's a there's there's you know I mentioned earlier the the fact that the primary reason that we get that we get stage fright is because we're scared of the rejection. And one of the things that makes stage fright worse is self-absorption. So when we're focused on ourself and we're just focused on the external part of ourself, like where you put your hand, uh, uh, how you stand, those kinds of things, then your anxiety usually increases because you're focused on yourself rather than the audience. And my students are focused on the audience. And as a result, you start to forget about your own anxiety because you're driving forward in service of the big promise that you are making to this audience. And your anxiety gets left at the door because you're so committed and so connected to that promise and to the people in the room that you step outside of your small disclosive space and you're focusing on them. And as a result, you're much less anxious. You know, it's it's funny because people often ask me, do you ever get nervous? My comment is, I get nervous the person introducing me is going to take too long. <laughs> so that's, that's what I get nervous about. But as you were just describing it, I was thinking, I just recently did a, um, a, a talk at Content Marketing World. And all that goes through my mind before the talk is, how do I make sure the people sitting here have concepts they can put into action and how do I get feedback on the results they're seeing? I mean, that's literally what's going through my mind heading into the talk is, have I packaged this in a way so I know these people are going to leave saying, wow, that was impactful. Mm -hmm. I can really use that. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it truly makes it so that I'm just trying to see where it connects to them. Um, I, I know that at the, at the very end of the book, you've got, what is it, 51 tips. Mm -hmm for speaking. And mm -hmm. one of my favorite ones is cut, cut, cut. There was a, there's kind of a signature piece of one of my talks that I've been giving for years that was 12 minutes long. And I remember we did this A-lister program with you and mm -hmm. you said, wow, I love that story, but we have to cut it. <laughs> and I thought, well, no, this thing kills. We can't possibly cut it. And I just trusted that we would do it. And of course, in this most recent talk, I delivered the same message, if you will, in four minutes and everyone in the audience was waiting on every single word mm -hmm. because of that. Yeah. So when you tell stories, stories need to be sculpted and crafted. Just because we experienced something doesn't mean it works as a story on stage. And unless we've told that story numerous times, dozens or even hundreds of times, we're probably not ready to tell that story on a stage. And that surprises people. But if a story is not sculpted, then there tends to be a lot of extraneous information. And if you look at great stories, great stories have three acts in them. The first act is the exposition. The exposition are the given circumstances, the time, the place, the setting. It's the information we need to know in order to understand what's about to happen in the story. The second act is the meat of the story. It's the conflict. It's the thing that went wrong. Now, when something goes wrong, usually 
we do something to try to make it right. Well, the story gets better when the thing we tried to do made it worse. And then the thing we tried to do made it worse. And then the thing we tried to do made it worse. And the more conflict, the more tension, the, the better, uh, the, the, the more interested the audience is in listening to the story. And the third act is the resolution. It's the punchline. It's the, they all lived happily ever after. It's, it's what the audience is waiting for. And in your particular story, there was more exposition than necessary. Sure. And once you cut out a lot of that exposition, the conflict got even stronger. Yep. And then the punchline had more impact. So the longer a story is, the more impactful that resolution needs to be. And the more conflict needs uh, to occur. So the conflict's got to be so high that the audience cannot look away. They are just they're just wrapped up in, in every bit of this conflict. And then the punchline has to be significant. But, the, you know, that's that's tough uh, in a 20-minute story. That's pretty tough. So the generally we're trying to make our story shorter because the story should only serve the promise uh, of the presentation. We don't tell stories just to tell stories. And the first bullet point of most articles on public speaking say, tell stories. <laughs> and I just think there's one word missing. I think the word missing is good stories. Exactly. Tell good stories. Because a story that isn't great when told from a stage is usually less effective than that same story told to a couple friends when you're sitting around. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and you don't need to open a speech with a story, by the way. I mean, you know this. I'm saying, by the way, for the audience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the, if you open a speech with a story, that speech has got to kill. And that speech has got to lay out uh, the, you know, the, the, the groundwork, uh, you know, for this uh, presentation. Sometimes you can just go smoothly, seamlessly right into, uh, you know, your presentation without some big to do at the beginning. It's not necessary. You don't have to start with such a big bang uh, that, you know, you blow them out of the water because in order to do that, you've got to make sure that it, it really is a big bang. Otherwise, just smoothly start right in it. And... You also don't have to tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. Now, if you're teaching a content-based speech, repetition is absolutely essential. And that kind of repetition throughout is very, very important and it's very helpful. So yes, there is a strong, uh, there is a good place for that theory, but it's not necessary. And, and, I, and I think also we, we oftentimes see people take that to extremes where it's not, here are the three main concepts I'm going to talk about. They literally say, Here's here's the punchline of my next three jokes, and they wonder why people don't laugh when they get to the punchline. Exactly right, Ian. And the reason that we don't have to always spell out what's coming is because audiences love to anticipate. If they're enjoying the moment that you're in with them, they will stay in that moment and not worry about what's coming. But if your speech is weak, it helps for them to know what's coming if they are interested in what, in what is coming. So that's, uh, there's a big distinction between those two things. It, like, for example, let's say you went to the movies and Tom Cruise was the lead in the movie and Tom Cruise uh, is, the, there's a shot of Tom Cruise right at the beginning and Tom's like, hey, this is Tom Cruise and um, I'm really happy that you're here and we're gonna do a movie for you now and here's what happens. <laughs> and you're then late. I- and then at the end is I die in the end. Exactly. What would I be die, the point of I die at the minute movie? 64. 
Exactly, exactly. <laughs> minute 64. So you wouldn't watch it. You want to be surprised and delighted. You want to be on the edge of your seat, not knowing what's coming next, but anticipating what's coming next. So very compelling speeches have those components in them. That kind that that excitement, that anticipation, that wonder. You've got a book full of valuable content. My only criticism of the book is that you gave me this advanced copy right before I went on a trip to the UK. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to start reading it on my flight and then I'll get some sleep. And of course, I ended up reading the whole book cover to cover. <laughs> I didn't sleep on the flight and and you're freaking to blame for it. <laughs> but if you, had, if, if you had one piece of advice that you could share with people on how to make their performances heroic, what would it be? Interesting. So one of the things that I say, and this is going to be quite funny. And by the way, never tell anybody, never tell an audience something's going to be funny before you tell them. By the way, it better be really funny now. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was once introduced uh, as, this is Michael Port. He is hysterically funny. You are going to laugh so hard. And I walked out there and I said, listen, because of that introduction, I'm not telling one joke. That's all there is to it. Not happening. You can't do that with a, with a comedian. So I recommend when you're giving a speech, never to say, and this is what people often do at the end of a speech, if you take nothing else away from this, take this one thing. Now, the reason I recommend we don't do that is because that suggests that's really the only, that's the most important, if not the only thing that we should remember. So as an audience member, I'd say, oh, well, why'd we sit here for an hour? Couldn't you have just told us that in like three minutes? And then I could have gone out and uh, answered emails. So I try to stay away from the one thing question because there is so many different, there are so many different things we need to concern ourselves with when it you know, it comes to learning anything, but especially public speaking, it is a holistic approach. Uh, and, and we don't want to look at it piecemeal. It's not one, you know, piece of advice that's going to make the difference. It's training, it's rehearsal, it's good content, it's et cetera, et cetera. So it's the big picture that's important and get into actually working on this with a great teacher, and that's the key, got to work with a great teacher, uh, and consistently over a long period of time. That's right. So don't, so, so don't just tell stories, tell good stories. Don't just get a teacher, get a great teacher. <laughs> and those are, those are a kind theme. of There's those, a theme those the underly, underlying themes in all this. And, and for people listening, I will tell you that this is a great read. It, it's tremendous value um, in this book. And if I just thought it was good, I would say, oh, you should take a look at the book. But this is something that should move up to the top of your list. Steal the show. And having been through your programs in person, I see those elements that that we pay thousands and thousands of dollars for in a book. Yeah, it's and it's funny. really amazing you're able to capture that in there. Yeah. Um, Michael, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Yeah, stealtheshow.com. Stealtheshow.com. Now it's a great time to go over there because with the launch of a book, we're giving away lots of incentives, lots of bonuses. I know it's amazing stuff. We'll have all that in the show notes. And if you have a chance to participate in one of Michael's live programs, if you have a chance to see him speak, adjust your schedule, go do it. You will be glad that you did. It's really remarkable. And I will tell you that for years, people would come to me for advice on speaking and I would mistakenly give it to them until I met <laughs> you and Amy and now anybody who contacts me and they say, can you give me advice? I say, absolutely. I'm happy to write down the following. Let me give you Michael's email address. That's great. Well, and heroic for, for that, uh, for that work, for those events, heroic public is the place to go. Yep. Outstanding. 
Michael, thanks so much. Always a pleasure talking to you. You're the best. Michael Port was just fantastic. Can't thank him enough for being on here. Steal the Show is a book you should definitely get. There are some great takeaways from Michael. Let me give you a quick 30-second recap of the biggest things I think you can put to work right away. First, unless you are thinking to yourself, every speaking is public speaking. So treat those big moments and cherish them because they can really make a difference. To avoid stage fright, focus on the results for the audience instead of focusing on your view of yourself, and that'll make you more relaxed and authentic. And finally, great stories have three acts. There's an exposition, a conflict, and a resolution. If you can't find them, neither can your audience. Remember, this show is all about you, the listener. If there's a guest you feel I should have on the program, if there's a topic you'd like me to address, please send me an email at ian.altman at growmyrevenue.com. Have a great week, make a difference in someone else's life, and discover a way to build your business in a way everybody can embrace, even your customer. 